I've got a, my own recorder here. Okay, that's what that other one's for. Oh, thank you, thank you. In the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. So my sermon this morning is going to be on the epistle reading. If you remember, that was from the uh, uh, letter to the Ephesians, chapter 5, beginning the first verse and going to the 14th verse. Uh, this is a rather lengthy reading, so I'd recommend that uh, you have take out a pew Bible and follow along in the pew Bible. Again, that's Ephesians 5, beginning in the first verse and going down to the 14th verse. I uh, read this passage quite a few times in preparation for this sermon, and uh, it was a little bit overwhelming because there's so much good stuff in here to preach on. I think I could probably do a whole sermon just on the first two verses, in fact. But I kind of wanted to get the whole thing in there somehow, and so I was struggling with finding a way to organize it. And I think I found a way to organize the material here that lets us see everything that Paul has to say here. So I'm going to divide this into acts, like a play. So the first act is going to be the first two verses. The second act is going to be from verse 3 down to verse 6. The third act is going to be from verse 7 down to verse 13. And then we're briefly going to discuss verse 14 as a kind of epilogue to this whole passage. So um, that's how we'll do it. And if you know anything about plays and dramatic structure, the first act is where we sort of set the stage and introduce the characters and sort of get us uh, moving towards the conflict that's at the center of the play. So that's what I'm saying these first two verses are doing in in chapter 5. They're setting the stage for us. And um, the question I want to say is, is, is this passage is asking, is whose child are you? Whose child are you? Now, if you had an upbringing like mine, that's a question you probably associate with something like a family reunion. You have all your relatives gathered together, some people you haven't seen in the longest time, and somebody a little bit older and a little bit taller than you comes up to you and says, whose child are you? And in my family, that usually was not difficult to guess because I really resemble my father quite a bit. So most people could guess that I was Doug's uh, son, my, my dad. Um, and in, the, in a similar sort of way, um, Paul is, is starting out by saying that we're a part of a family here. In verse 1, he talks about being beloved children. And he says, um, be imitators. Become, the Greek is more like become. Become imitators of God as beloved children. Now, as we know, there's um, different types of family resemblances. You can just resemble your, your parents um, physically in appearance and your physiognomy. And you can also resemble your parents in habits. As we all pick up habits and, and proclivities and um, activities from spending time with our parents and being around our parents. In my family, the big thing was games. So my family loved to play dominoes. And from the time I was a little child, I wanted to play dominoes with my, with my parents and, and my brothers and sisters. And Dad took me aside one day and he said, you can play dominoes with us, but first you have to learn how to count by fives. Because counting by fives is very important in dominoes. So I would stay up long until the night, laying on my bed, figuring out, you know, practicing counting by fives, just so that I would be ready to play dominoes with, with my family. And in a similar sort of way, Paul says there's a natural imitation that happens because 
we are children of God. We become imitators of God as beloved children just because we are his children. Now, um, initially, this idea of becoming imitators of God, Paul talks about being imitators of him, being imitators of Christ. There's different verses like that. But here, Paul actually says, become imitators of God. And that, if you think about it, is kind of an overwhelming notion at first. Think of the kind of heroes that we have and that we imitate. You may think of a young boy's room where he's got the poster of the sports star that he wants to be like, the basketball guy that he wants to play like, and he's got that poster up on the wall. Or you may think of somebody um, in their study who has a bust of this famous scholar or musician. Like the bust of Beethoven was always a big deal to have in like a musician's uh, study, right? He has that bust there because he wants to think of Beethoven and be like Beethoven and imitate Beethoven. But if you're going to imitate God, what have you got, right? There's, you can't, you're going to have a poster up on the wall with the, 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 the column of smoke and the column of fire. How do I imitate that? How do I imitate something that's so far above me, that's so greater than I am in majesty and holiness and perfection? How do I even begin to imitate that? I need to have some kind of model um, to work from. And as we're going to see in the second verse, we have a model. So that's not going to be... That's not going to be a problem for very long. But one other thing that the first verse sets up for us here, and it's something very important for us to acknowledge, is that everything, when we talk about the holiness of the Christian life, it has to begin from the fact of justification. It has to begin from the fact of Jesus' sacrifice for us. He says, be imitators of God as beloved children. It's not as though we have a list of do's and don'ts that we're trying to conform ourselves to in order to get into the family, okay? That would be a very distorted picture of looking at Christian holiness, is I have to gin up this holiness that I have to practice through my own effort so that God will then accept me into his family. No, it's just the other way around. You are in the family. Therefore, be, imitator, be an imitator of God. It's not that you have to conform to this standard and then God will bring you in. It's you're in, now be a part of that family. Okay, so the, the first verse you might say is setting up two different problems. One, if we're going to be imitators of God, what are we going to look at? Because God is invisible. We've never seen God. Scripture says that. And the manifestations of God that we've seen seem so far above us in power and glory and might. How can we ever possibly be imitators of that? And the second problem is, how, how is it that we come to find ourselves in this family? Because we know that we're sinners, we know that we, we, we are sinful, we know that we fall short of God's standard of holiness. How is it that we found ourselves as beloved children? And the answer to both of these is the second verse. And walk in love, as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us. Christ's sacrifice and the justification that that bring us, brings us has to be the foundation of everything. If we get that backwards, if we get justification and sanctification reversed and try to put sanctification before our justification, I have to meet this moral standard before I can be justified, we're going to make the Christian life into something that's crushing, into that's dispiriting, and that it's something that leads us to despair because we can never, on our own efforts and by our own power, conform to God and his holiness. We have to be justified first and then we can live into that sanctification that God wills for us. And that sanctification is available to us because Christ walked in love and gave himself up for us. 
as a sacrifice and an offering, and that has taken away our sins. That is what has made us beloved children. As the Apostle John says, he gave us power to become the power to become the sons of God, and that he has wiped out our sins. And also, of course, when he says, walk in love as Christ has loved us, that's also our model, right? That's what's on the poster. That's what's on the bust in the study. That's the image that we're going to conform ourselves to. We can see what it's like to be God as a human being because God became a human being and showed us what a perfectly holy human life looks like. And that perfectly holy human life looks like walking in love and being willing to give ourselves, give ourselves, to sacrifice ourselves for the sake of others. It says that he gave himself as an offering and a sacrifice for a sweet-smelling savor. Now, um, I think it's important to point out when it says that Christ gave himself as a sacrifice, that was the sacrifice of the cross. And that is the, as our prayer book says, the one perfect and sufficient sacrifice and oblation for the satisfaction of all our sins. I think we can get a little bit muddled on this sometimes because as Anglicans, we like to think of like not just as a table, but as an altar, okay? And we sometimes refer to the Eucharist as being a sacrifice. And in a sense, it is a sacrifice. But our theology of the sacrifice of the Eucharist is very different from Roman Catholic theology. So in Anglican theology and Protestant theology, there are three types of sacrifices. There's what's called a propitiatory sacrifice. And that's the kind of sacrifice that exists in every religion. The gods are angry with us. The gods are are wrathful against us. And we're going to offer them a sacrifice to placate their wrath so that they can be well disposed towards us. That's the kind of sacrifices that exist in Judaism. Those are the kind of sacrifices that exist in heathen religions and pagan religions. And in a sense, that's the kind of sacrifice that exists in Christianity. But there's only one propitiatory sacrifice in Christian theology. And that is the sacrifice that Christ gave on the cross. And that one perfect and sufficient sacrifice was enough to wipe out all of God's wrath towards us and justify us for all our sins. There is no need whatsoever for any additional sacrifice to be performed in order for God to, um, uh, for God to set aside his wrath towards us. But Roman Catholic theology would teach that the, um, the Eucharist is, in a sense, a fresh propitiatory sacrifice. Christ's sacrifice was once and for all, but Roman Catholic theology would teach us that it's being re-offered and that God is a little bit happier with us at the end of the Eucharist than he was at the beginning. But this is not Protestant theology. This is not Anglican theology. Anglican theology says there's only one sacrifice that's propitiatory, that secures God's favor towards us, that lets him forgive us and wipe out our sins, and that makes him set his wrath aside for us. There's only one, and that was Christ's sacrifice on the cross. So in what sense is this a sacrifice? Well, in addition to propitiatory sacrifices, sacrifices that are given to assuage the wrath of God, there's also sacrifices of praise and thanksgiving. And that's what the Eucharist is. It's a sacrifice of praise and thanksgiving. It's not as though we think that God is any more happy with us at the end of this service than he was at the beginning of this service. But we are offering up our gratitude for the sacrifice that Jesus has already performed and giving our thanksgiving and praise to God for that sacrifice through the Lord's Supper. 
So I think it's very important for us to keep that distinction clear in our minds. There is one sacrifice in which Jesus gave himself. This is a memorial of that sacrifice. This is not a re-sacrifice or a re-offering in any sense of that sacrifice. So that's Act 1. We've, we've, we've set the stage. We know who we are. We know what our model is. Act 2, which if you remember, goes from verses 3 through 6. Act 2, I'm going to entitle The Lie. The Lie. Because I think the Apostle Paul is very concerned here that we not fall into a false idea about what the Christian life is. And basically, that false idea that Paul wants to refute here is the idea that justification can exist without sanctification. That we can be have faith in Jesus Christ and be forgiven of our sins, but then no good works or fruit will flow from that whatsoever. We just continue in our life as we were before, just believing in Christ and having our sins forgiven. That's not the way it works. And Paul wants to make sure that we're very clear on that point. Sanctification, our growth and holiness, and our uh, turning away from sin, and our, and, our, and our becoming more like Jesus Christ, that follows necessarily after justification. And so in verse 3, he mentions um, some sins that do not characterize the life of God's saints. Sins of the flesh and impurity, and also sins of greed. These are not sins that characterize God's people. In verse 4, he goes on to talk about um, sins of the tongue, um, shamefulness, foolish talk. The word for foolish talk in the Greek is really interesting because it's, it's like the word moron put together with the word for speech. And it's just moron speech. One big word. Moron speech is not something that should characterize um, God, God's holy people. Um, this is talk that's unnecessary, that's unprofitable, that's unwise. That should not be something that characterizes us. And then the word after foolish talk, um, which is translated as jesting, it's kind of an interesting word because in Greek, this word has kind of a positive connotation most of the time. Um, it's a word that means something like witty rapport, um, witty conversation, a quick wit. And I think that Paul is not meaning to say that all joking and, and, and jesting and giving people a hard time, that sort of thing, as long as it's you know, friendly and understood. I don't think he's saying that all of that is a sin necessarily, but I think he is saying there's a type of, a, there's a type of witty conversation that is actually very ungodly. And this, we might think of this as being conversation that uh, cuts people to the quick, that puts people down that makes light of holy things or gets us to laugh at things that we shouldn't laugh at. Um, we might think of, uh, in this connection, Psalm 1, talking about not being with the scoffers and the people that, that laugh at things that shouldn't be laughed at. There's a kind of wittiness, there's a kind of humor, there's a kind of laughter that we should not engage in because it leads us to take lightly things that are actually quite important. So all those things should not be a characteristic of our speech, but rather... Giving of thanks. Interesting. Um, the Greek word there is actually the same root as Eucharist. Eucharist is a giving of thanks for Christ's sacrifice. And, and, and Paul says instead of moron talk, instead of this, um, wittiness, this ungodly wittiness, instead of those things, our speech should be characterized by thanksgiving. And some of the commentators think thanksgiving here should actually have a broader 
application that Paul is talking about gracious speech. He's talking about speech about religious matters, the things of God, those sorts of important matters of conversation, not just um, the, the ordinary and the mundane. But I think it also includes just giving of thanks. I think God's saints are characterized by the way that they give thanks for him and praise for him in their conversation with one another and in their, spe- and in their public speech. And so in verse 5, we get the, we get the kind of um, uh, the, the fundamental conflict here. We, we get, the, we get the, uh, sort of the dark clouds forming on the horizon when he says that um, you are aware that the people who practice these things, the sexually immoral, the impure, um, the greedy man, who is actually an idolater, according to Paul, these um, people have no inheritance in the kingdom of God. They have no inheritance in the kingdom of God. And if you think back to that family imagery that we started out with in the first two verses, what is the fundamental sign that you are not a part of the family? Well, you have no inheritance with the family. You've been cut off from what is rightfully yours as a member of the family. And Paul says the people that practice these things, um, the people that practice these sins which he's mentioned, have no inheritance. They are not part of the family of, uh, of God's kingdom. They have no inheritance with it. And um, in verse 6, he sort of states it very plainly. Uh, in, in verse 6, he says, Let no one deceive you with empty words, deceitful words, misleading words, that because of these sins, because of these things, the wrath of God is coming on who? The sons, not of the light, not, uh, not the beloved sons, but on the sons of disobedience. So there's more than one family that we could be a part of, right? We can be a part of the family of God, which is the family of beloved uh, children and beloved sons, or we can be a part of the other family with the sons of disobedience. And that will be shown through our actions and through what we practice. Okay, so Act 2 takes us to a kind of dark place here. We kind of feel like we're a little bit nervous right now, right? Because we know that even after we become believers even after the Holy Spirit is at work in our life, we still have indwelling sin. We still um, have sins that overtake us and temptations that overtake us. Maybe some of the sins that he mentioned. So we're kind of in uh, maybe like a, a little bit of a worrisome place here. Like, where, are, are, who am I? Am I, am, I in this, am I in this family? Am I in the family of God? Or am I in this family of the sons of disobedience? How, how can I know? How can I be assured of, of the fact that I am saved? And um, in the 8th verse, uh, Paul actually makes a very interesting statement here. You were darkness. At one time, you were darkness. You were all of these things. At one time, you were a son of disobedience. At one time, you were practicing greed. You were practicing the sins of the flesh. You were practicing the sins of the tongue. These characterized who you were as a person. But... Now you are light in the Lord. There's a, there's a certain type of evangelical sermon that seems to specialize in the ifs. If, 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 if. And I think you can if a congregation to death, basically. Um, in the sense that you can make everything just seem so hypothetical. If this characterizes your behavior. If you truly put your faith in God. If you truly believe in Jesus. If you're truly bearing fruit. If, if, if. And you, and you never get any assurance from that because you're always asking yourself, well, do, do I 
do I satisfy the hypothetical? Am I one of these people in the if? But Paul doesn't tend to specialize in ifs. He, he will use an if every now and again if he thinks it's warranted, but Paul tends to not preach the if, Paul tends to preach the because. And that's a fundamental way of switching our view of things. Not if you are Christ's, this is what you will be, but because you are Christ's, this is what you should be. You see how that's much more encouraging? Instead of putting you in the, in dangling you over this hypothetical, it says, no, because you are Christ's, therefore pursue these things. And I tend to think that, that Paul specializes in the becauses more than in the ifs, because he had a strong sacramental theology. I think Paul would look at a congregation of people who have been baptized and are um, not in any kind of um, uh, high-handed or um, flagrant sin, but people that have been baptized and, and believing and are reading their Bibles and are praying and are coming to the Lord's Supper and confessing their sins. I think Paul would look at a congregation of people like that and say, might there be wheats mixed in with the tares? There might be. There might be people that are hypocrites. There might be people that are professing belief falsely. But I think uh, Paul's um, natural charitable assumption would be um, if you have been baptized, if you are confessing your sins, if you are coming to the Lord's Supper, then you are most likely a part of that family of God. I'm going to assume that that's where you're at until you prove something otherwise. And so rather than saying, if you do this, blah, 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 Paul's um, statement is because you are Christ. So I can look out with confidence at you who are baptized, who have confessed your sins, who have come to the Lord's table and say, and I can say because you are Christ's, because you belong to Jesus Christ, therefore, let's turn away from these sins. Therefore, let's not let these sins characterize our behavior. Because we are Christ, therefore, let's bear the fruit that Paul is going to tell us about in the third act of this play. Um, so what is that fruit? And that's my, that's my title for Act 3, is the fruit. What is the fruit that we see because we belong to Jesus Christ? Well, um, for one thing, um, we see the fruit of goodness. That's in verse 9. Goodness and justice or righteousness is, I think, the way, another way it's translated, and truth. Um, we see those fruits coming forth in our life. We see that we have a love for goodness. We see that we have a love for righteousness. We see that we have a love and a commitment to truth, even when it's difficult. And we see that we, in verse 10, are proving to see what is acceptable to God. We are searching the scriptures to figure out what God approves of and what he doesn't approve of. And our desire is to conform ourselves to that. Not because we're trying to save ourselves. Not because we're trying to justify ourselves. But because as beloved children, we want to please our Father. And it grieves us when we displease our Father. And so, is it possible for a believer to fall into some of the sins that Paul mentioned in Act 2? Is it possible for us to fall into temptation those sins every now and again? Yes, it is. It is possible for a believer um, to have that happen because we still have the sinful flesh inside of us. But when, we, when those sins overtake us, they grieve us. They cause us grief and sorrow. And we turn immediately from those sins and we confess them to God and he cleanses us from those sins. We don't persist in those sins unrepentantly. But we bring our sins to God and he is faithful and just to cleanse us of those sins. We struggle with these sins instead of giving into them and living according to them. 
we do have to be careful with that phrase struggle, though. It has to be really a struggle, okay? We can't just say, oh, I'm struggling with this sin or that sin when we're not really struggling with it at all. You know, to struggle with something is to fight with it. It's to resist it. It's to, it's to um, do everything we can to hinder it. But there's some people that say they struggle with, you know, and I think I've spoken loosely about some of these things in the past myself. I'll say I struggle with sin A, B, or C. But that sin isn't really something I'm struggling with. That sin is more like a house plant that I have at home. I come home and I water it and I make sure it's getting enough sunlight and I sometimes change it into a new pot because this old pot is not good for it. I, I cherish that sin. I don't struggle with it. And it can't be that way. We mustn't be that way. Or we say we struggle with a sin when we treat it more like a beloved pet. When we get home at the end of the day, we can't wait to see it. It's our comfort. We, 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 we take it up into our lap and we, we give it a pet and we say, oh, aren't you a good boy and that sort of thing. That's not struggling with sin. We can't cherish sin if we're going to struggle with it. And we can't be God's people if we're going to cherish sins or treat them as uh, beloved companions. We have to resist them. We have to do everything possible to cut them off and cut off their power in our life. And if we do so, we will prove what is acceptable to God. And uh, in verse 11, as we, as we grow in sanctification, we also realize that these works of darkness are fruitless. They're unfruitful. You know, I think we're beginning to be sanctified when we look at our sins and we think, oh, that's a terrible sin, that's a wicked sin, I can't keep doing that. I think we're getting to the end of our sanctification when we look at our sin and we don't just say, oh, what a hideous, awful, ugly sin, but we say, what a dumb sin. What a ridiculous thing to do. Why was this, why was this sin ever appealing to me? There's no fruit in this. There's nothing, there's nothing profitable or productive that comes from this sin. This sin has brought me nothing. It has brought me no joy. It has brought me nothing in my life that's built me up. It's fruitless. I think when, when, we, when we're getting to the end of our sanctification, it's not so much that we uh, are horrified by our sin, but we almost laugh at it. What about this was ever appealing to me? What about this ever seemed like it would be attractive? And in verse 11 um, and then 12 and, and 13, another fruit of our sanctification is that we reprove sin. We, um, we look at it and we judge it for what it is. The um, pleasing appearance that it used to give to us, we tear it off and we see it for what it really is and all of its ugliness and all of its ridiculousness and all of its absurdity. We, we, we reprove it. We, we, we shine the light on it and see what it is. Um, I don't know if you've ever had this experience. I, I think you probably have. I think it's pretty common. You, you, know, you put on your shirt in the morning and you look at the shirt and you're like, okay, this looks pretty good. And you get out in the sunlight and, you, and the light hits that shirt and you see some stain that you couldn't see when you're in the darkness. right? Once you're in the light, you see all these imperfections that you couldn't see before. And that's what... Paul is saying our sanctification is light. As we're increasingly sanctified, as we're increasingly growing in holiness, we can see these stains and these um, imperfections for what they are. So uh, then wrapping up now with the 14th verse is kind of an epilogue here. Uh, God, uh, Paul gives us uh, some commands. He says, Awake, O sleeper, rise up from the dead. 
Now, I don't know about you, but this is actually a little bit of a peculiar command if you think about it, right? If, if somebody is sleeping, uh, can you really command them to wake up? If you're, if you're sleeping, can you wake yourself up? Is that, is that really how that works? Or does something have to wake you up, right? You can go to somebody and wake them up. But if you just stand over somebody and say, hey, wake up, they're just going to lie there and keep sleeping, right? You can't, you can't really wake yourself up. And nor, nor can you rise from the dead, um, which is what the, it says in the, in the latter part of, of verse 14. If, if, you, if you command a dead person to rise, they're just going to lie there, right? They have no power of themselves to, rise, to raise themselves. What Paul is saying here in verse 14 is that it is Christ who has to bring us out of this darkness. It is Christ who has to bring us out of our sins. He has to awaken us from our sleep. He has to bring us from our death. And only then can he begin to... Uh, put us on the path of justi- both justification and sanctification. So the work from beginning to end is grace. The work from beginning to end is God's gracious intervention towards us. The, uh, the Articles of Religion, which are the fundamental statement of Anglican belief, say that we have no power in our natural state to turn ourselves towards God. It's actually God who has to reach out to us with his grace and enable us to turn towards him. That's the only way that this process can begin. So may God be merciful to us. May he awaken us from the sleep of sin. If we are still in darkness, may he bring us into his wondrous light. May he bring us from the death of our sins and trespasses and bring us into the new life of his justification. Bring him into our family as beloved children and then give us the power by his grace to walk in sanctification that we might grow, Lord, in holiness, that we might turn away from those sins that once entangled us so easily that we might despise those sins, but then realize their emptiness and their ridiculousness and their absurdity. And may we turn towards you and your holiness, where true fruit is to be found, where true goodness is to be found, where our life is to be found. And may all these things happen through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen.